right, we finished our sprint through the first 15 chapters, and uh, now we can uh, slow down to an explorer's pace, and we're going to keep that pace uh, for the rest of the uh, for the rest of 1st and 2nd Samuel. Um, but before we get into our text, uh, I want to get you thinking this morning, so we're going to begin a little philosophical, and so um, if that's the way your, your mind is wired, great. Um, if it's not the way your mind's wired, I hope this is, this is helpful. One of the things we're going to see in our text is one of the things that is hardest, maybe the hardest thing for us to reconcile. How is it that divine sovereignty and human agency are both upheld? How is it that God is all sovereign, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, creator of the universe, Lacks nothing, needs nothing. Nothing can be added to him. Is in control of all things. Yet we still, as image bearers, make real decisions, make real actions with real consequences. So I was trying to think of a parallel for this. Made me think of if you you were given the task of explaining Newton's laws to a two-year-old. That's about the, uh, the gap between us understanding divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Because a two-year-old operates under Newton's laws every day. Every day when they move a toy from one side of the room to the other, they are applying a force. They, that object at, at rest stays at rest until they uh, push it, and it stays in motion until uh, something else stops it, like a wall or the kitchen table, or hopefully not a window. And so... A two-year-old operates by these principles every day, but could never comprehend them. And we know a two-year-old is not walking around the house saying, this object is at rest, this object is in motion, I am exerting force, Uh, force equals max times acceleration. Like Maybe your your, your two-year-old is walking, maybe that's what they're muttering all day long. Uh, Maybe that's what it is. I I don't think so. I think they're just playing. But it doesn't make those laws or principles any less true. We are no different than the two-year-old when it comes to the omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent creator of the universe. He's truly sovereign over everything. Not one square molecule out of his control. Yet we also have real agency and real responsibility, even if we don't know how. We just live and we operate in faith. Just because we can't reconcile it doesn't mean it isn't true. So our text this morning is a great example of that. Of how the sovereign Lord, the regent, the, the, the king, the supreme ruler, uses his human vice regents, those who are under the authority of another, um, those who are uh, given authority, in a limited capacity to serve the end of the one who they are under, how we as his vice regents accomplish what he has already determined. We're going to have fun with that. Um, and so uh, one of the things I, I, I want to get to, if we haven't gotten uh, too technical enough, we talked about philosophy. Um, now we're going to get into a little bit of Hebrew, um, a little bit of Hebrew etymology because this is going to be helpful. Um, I, I love that our congregation reads ahead. And I get great text messages throughout the week. Hey, what are you going to be preaching on? Hey, these are some of the, the things I've seen in the text. Um, 
is, is, is this where you're going? Is this one of the main themes? And I love those questions. But un- unfortunately, and, and those are good Bible study tools, but unfortunately, unless you read Hebrew, you really can't see what the main idea is of this, this text. There's an interesting Hebrew word. It's a Hebrew stem, uh, ra'ah, uh, Hebrew students. Um, it's a, it, it's, it has such a wide semantic range. It can be anything from see, like lay your eyes upon, um, consider, hide, uh, or, or excuse me, um, consider or, or choose, but it's also translated here, provide. This verb occur, occurs seven times in this chapter. The uh, noun occurs twice. Here's why um, I say that. Not just because I get really excited about words, because I do, um, but they matter. So when you get into 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 1, says the Lord, the Lord says, I have provided Ra'ah, a king for myself among the sons. In verse 6 and 7, um, it actually appears three times. Samuel looks on Eliab, but the Lord looks on the heart. The Lord doesn't, look, Lord doesn't see as man sees. He sees the heart. Okay, why are we bring it all together? Because for the Lord God Almighty, everything he sees, he provides for himself. Now here's where the disconnect is. I see everything in this, this room. I only have control over what is right here. There is nothing that God sees that he does not have control over. Everything he sees, he affects. There is, no, there is no distinction between God's vision and God's action. Everything he sees for himself, he provides for himself. Um, let me give you an example. Let's turn to Genesis 22. This is a very familiar passage. We sang about it earlier. Christ, the true and better Isaac. This interplay between these, these two terms come up, and, and, I, and I promise you this will be helpful when we get into our text. Genesis 22. You guys know the scene. The Lord tells uh, Abraham to go up on the mountain and to make a sacrifice and brings his son with him. Verse 7. Isaac says to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, I see the fire and I see the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, can you guess what Hebrew word is here? God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. When they came to the place which God had told them, Abraham built the altar and laid the wood in order and bound up his son and laid him on the altar on the the top of the wood. And Abraham reached out his hand and took out the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. Wonder what that word is? Ra'ah. The Lord had seen it all along. The Lord had saw and provided a ram. But it was not until Abraham trusted God that he saw. His sight became the sight of the Lord when he trusted the Lord. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, or the Lord will see. As it is said to this day on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided, 
or on this mount the Lord shall be seen. The Lord made, him, made Abraham see what he sees in faith. Brothers and sisters, that's where we're going this morning. And so we're going to see a lot of ourselves in Samuel. Because he can only see with human eyes. But the Lord is going to teach him. He's going to help him, and hopefully he teaches and helps us as well. Um, and, as you can imagine, these two terms will come to their head in chapter 7, which is the theological and literary heart of our text. All right, so I'm going to read 1 Samuel chapter 16, 1 through 13. And we're going to save that last sentence in verse 13 until next week. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. For I have provided for, my, for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he'll kill me. But the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to sacrifice. And I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him who I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. But the Lord sees, not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse came, uh, called uh, Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. In awe of your word, you are the sovereign of all creation. Before a day of our lives were, before a breath came out of our lungs, before a word is spoken, you had them all written in your book. You knew what your people Israel needed to hear when they opened and read these words. You know what your people throughout the ages need to hear when they read these words. You know what we need to hear. You have prepared this day and this text to minister to your people where we are right now. Lord, you are awesome. That is awesome to just think about. That there is not one moment of our lives that not only have you planned for, but you sovereignly orchestrate for the good of your people and the glory of your name. 
Lord, help us to rest in that. Make that an encouragement to us. Would we be comforted that our God is sovereign over all? Nothing surprises him. Nothing catches him off guard. Nothing nothing uproots his plans. And he saw fit to make us in his image and call us his children in the name of Christ and conform us to that image as new creatures. Lord, we praise you for salvation. We praise you for spiritual sight, eyes that see. Let's pray for your saints here this morning, that you would give us spiritual discernment, help us to see as you see, and anyone here this morning who is blind, anyone here this morning who is lost, who has not eyes to see or ears to hear, spirit awaken their hearts. Breathe fresh into them. Regenerate their dead, stony hearts. Turn it into a heart of flesh, good soil that produces fruit to your glory. Would that be what you use the preaching of your word for? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so our first section here, uh, first few verses. The Lord provides an answer. To not just the problem of what's gonna, what are we going to do about this king thing, but to all of Samuel's griefs and fears. I love how at the same time, the Lord is, is planning for the king of Israel, and yet is still ministering and teaching Samuel in the process. He begins with the words to Samuel, how long will you grieve? That's not even get to Saul yet. How long will you grieve? Uh, we, we did kind of a, a uh, quick tour through the life of Saul leading up to this point. If you go back to chapter 15, verse 11, the Lord says, I have regret. I regret that I made Saul king, for he turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried out to the Lord all night. This is a man who is so invested in the word of God and the people of God that he can't sleep if their king is not being faithful. At the very end of the chapter, verse 35, after Saul's final rebellion, Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. There is a direct relationship between the Lord's grieving, excuse me, regretting, and Samuel's grieving. As we talked about last week, it's not that the Lord changed his mind or got surprised by this, but he gives a term we can understand. Saul is not a good king. Saul does not fear the Lord. Saul does not obey the Lord. And it breaks Samuel's heart. So I don't want to overlook this. This is the state of where Samuel is. And Christian heartbreak. How many of us have had our hearts broken by those we trust and who often fail us? especially when it's our leaders, especially when it's those we look up to. We know how much it hurts. I remember the day when an email went out in a previous church that I attended to say that our pastor had an ongoing adulterous affair with his secretary and how crushed I was. Also really exposed something in my heart, how much I idolized a man 
And it shook a lot of people's faith, and a lot of people left the church. I know how a lot of you felt in the last couple weeks when a pastor you know and love was given a chance to give godly counsel to a concerned grandmother and sends her on a fool's errand. And many of you said, what do you think about this? This guy who who has been such a great influence to me failed miserably on a public stage. It hurts. Pastoral grief is a real thing. When you love people, when you invest in them, and when you see them struggle and you see them fail and maybe even fall away, it breaks your heart. You grieve over it. How heavy is it when you love the Lord and you love his people so deeply? We got to pause for a moment and see where Samuel is here. But the key word here is how long. The Lord didn't tell him that he shouldn't grieve. Grief is not a sinful thing. He says, how long will you grieve? Now let's examine ourselves a little bit here. How many times are we stuck mourning what we thought should be? How many times are we obsessed, get on the uh, hamster wheel of missed opportunities, lost loves, lost desires, lost hope? Let me give you a little piece of godly counsel. If you are mourning something that you lost or something that you thought should be, if God hasn't given it to you, it's not good for you. If God hasn't given it to you, Ultimately, as he says here, he has rejected it. That's not always a comfort. Um, I think John Piper says this really well. If you want to talk, if you want to dig into deep things of the heart, uh, Piper always sums things up greatly. He says this: occasionally weep over the life you w- you hoped would be, grieve the losses, then wash your face, trust God, and embrace the life you have. Um, I'm not a big fan of tattoos, but if there's something I need to see every day and we need to see every day, this might be a good reminder. Um, so that's where Samuel is. And I don't have anything against your tattoos. I'm just not getting them. Um, so the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you re- grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Remember why the Lord rejected him. Verse 26 of chapter 15. Then Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the the word of the Lord. And the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. So what will Israel do now? They put all their eggs in this Saul basket, and um, he's now rejected. And I think partly Samuel is grieving for Saul, but he's also grieving for the nation of Israel. And the Lord says, don't worry. I have rejected him from being king over Israel, but then he gives him commands. Fill your horn with oil. You've got anointing to do. And go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. I'll send you where you need to go. And so as Christ promised us, those who mourn, Matthew 5, 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. He comforts Samuel. 
He gives an answer to his grieving prayer, and that is an encouragement to us that when we go before the Lord with grief, we don't have to go ashamed because he comforts his people, especially when there is a righteous grief. And so in teaching Samuel, he has already provided the ends, but he sovereignly also provides the means. Here's what he says. Fill your horn with oil, and I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite for, here's the purpose, I have provided Ra'ah for myself, a king among Jesse's sons. This word Ra'ah is like, it is seeing for the purpose of considering or choosing. I have seen, I have chosen for myself. And I love this reminder. Yeah, the king you wanted, like the king after the nations, he's going to fail. Remember, brothers and sisters, the, the Lord's choice is better than our choice. And he exercises his sovereignty for his glory and our good. Isn't that amazing that at the very same time, what brings his name the most glory brings us the most good? Praise God. But Samuel's human. He's like us. This should be good news. Okay, Saul's fallen to pieces. The Lord has a plan. Where are we going, Lord? But what's the next thing Samuel says? How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. He heard the audible voice of God saying, get your oil ready. I'm preparing a king. And he talks back. But don't judge him so quickly. Because how many times have you opened the word of God and read the promises of God and closed the book of God and snuggled right up to your fears and your doubts and your disbeliefs again? We're no different. But what does the Lord do? He doesn't reprimand Samuel. He doesn't tell him you need to have more faith. He doesn't tell, and he does. But what does the Lord do? Does, asks, acts like Samuel has no doubt or no care in the world. How can I go? If Saul hears about it, he'll kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. He has already given him the provision. And he's given him the cover story. There's nothing wrong with being shrewd. Samuel does not have to lie, and Saul doesn't need to know. This is above his pay grade. The Lord is very strategic in how he sends him. But the reason that he sends him is important. Because sacrifices are reminders that you are in desperate need of the mercy and grace of God. That in order to approach God, you need a sacrifice. And so, brothers and sisters, a good practice in our fear is to go offer sacrifices. Um, wait a second, Pastor Tim, I've been here for a little while, and uh, Christ is the final sacrifice, and uh, we don't have sacrifices to offer anymore. And you are correct. But since Christ has offered the final sacrifice, we now have a sacrifice that is always pleasing to God and does not require blood. Because blood has already been shed. Turn to Hebrews chapter 13. 
I can't go through all of Hebrews chapter 13. But if you have a Bible, uh, especially in ESV, at the beginning of chapter 13, it says, Sacrifice is pleasing to God. This chapter begins by saying, Jesus, uh, or uh, jump in at verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he talks about his sacrifice. His sacrifice given outside of the walls. He is the final sacrifice. Go to verse 15. Everything from chapter 9 through chapter 15 is dependent on the final sacrifice of Christ. Verse 15. Through him then, because his sacrifice is complete, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is... What are our sacrifices? The fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. What do you do when you are scared, intimidated by man? When you are grieving, you praise the Lord. And not just that. Do not neglect to do good and share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Look at these two new categories of sacrifices that we have. To help us to draw closer to the Lord, we praise his name and we serve others. You want to know how to get out of your own funk and get out of your own house? First thing he said to Samuel was go. Get up, wipe off your tears, go make a sacrifice. You know what we need to do? Get up, wipe off our tears and praise the Lord. And use what the Lord has given us to serve others. It is one of the best remedies for our fear and our grief. To point them to him. One of the best things for us in our grief and in our struggling is just to distract ourselves from ourselves. Because your greatest enemy in that moment is the thoughts and the fears that run round and round and round in your head. And you got to get off the hamster wheel. And so the Lord uses our grief, our discouragement, even our joy to bring him glory and to serve and build up one another. And so, yeah, when they say, what did you talk about in church this morning? We get to go offer sacrifices, but not the ones you're thinking about. And so Samuel does. And when he arrives in Bethlehem, he gets kind of a strange welcome. So he's told to invite Jesse to the sacrifice. You shall anoint um, and you shall anoint for me him who I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? Well, well that's weird. Um, in those days, if a prophet came to visit you, it probably was not good. It usually means that you were sinning and that God was bringing judgment upon you if you did not repent. But this is not that occasion. But it's interesting where we find ourselves Again, with the elders in Bethlehem. Do you remember the last time we saw the elders in Bethlehem? Boaz was at the gate negotiating to take a wife. And from that union, there would be a child. And from that child, the people of God would be blessed. And a couple generations later, the elders of that same city are witnesses to the anointing of the child who would bless the nation through which an anointed child would come to bless the nations. And so he tells them to consecrate themselves. And consecration, it's just a, it comes from the, the, the root of, of to make holy. 
It is to present yourself holy to God. Prepare for a sacrifice. Put away all worldly things. Wash and prepare yourself. Uh, Pay attention to that term. It's going to come up again later. And so next, when they came, okay, so he uh, consecrated Jesse and his sons, invite them to the sacrifice. Um, Verse 6 and verse 7, this is the literary and theological center and heart of our text. Everything points here. Everything flows from here. Um, Where's Jared? It's the the bacon, right, Jared? The most important part. Uh, if, if If you're at Wednesday night Bible study, you know. This text is also chiastic. Because it is an action of the Lord, an action of Samuel, and the interplay between God and man in verses 6 and 7. But Samuel still needs to learn a lesson. He's still seeing with his temporal eyes. When they came, he looked, ra'ah, this is the ra'ah of man on um, Eliab, and thought, surely the Lord's, um, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Now, Samuel is a godly man, and he fears the Lord, but he struggles uh, with having man crushes. Um, he, sa- he sees him, and on first sight, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. If this is not the first time. Let's go back. Chapter 10. Chapter 10. The end of verse, 20, the end of verse 23. Saul's hiding with the baggage, and... Um, When he stood up among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. Samuel knows nothing about him. Samuel said to the people, do you see him, Ra'ah, whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, long live the king. This is how Samuel is judging the king. Seeing with carnal eyes. And so we got to stop again. Because how many times do we judge books by their covers? How many times do we butcher words? Um, I have learned as a pastor not to assess people simply on their appearance. Sometimes it's true. Sometimes it checks out. Um, But other times I have seen very well-dressed, well-put-together people who walk in here and you get to know them and they are a wreck. And I've met other people who shop on the clearance rack at Goodwill, and they are still dear friends to this day. If you know, you know, it makes me smile just thinking about it. But we got to be careful because we can often do the same thing. We, we, we assize people up and we assess them based on what they see. But what does the Lord say? Verse 7, do not look on his appearance. Or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. Samuel was looking, but he was trusting his eyes. Rookie mistake. And since we can't see how the Lord sees, we must be more deliberate. We, we've got to be careful about these, these, these jerk reactions of the first thing I see, the first thing that catches my eye, the first thing that catches my attention, that must be it. Because usually... What is appealing to us is rejected by the Lord. Um, Slowly growing to be my favorite commentary on 1 Samuel. Dale Ralph David says this. Sometimes Yahweh must save us from our saviors. Our self-chosen solutions to kingdom needs or personal dilemmas. 
the Lord is saving Samuel from himself. Samuel is already ready to crown a king and crown a savior on first glance. But that's not what the Lord sees. Do not look on his appearance on the height of his stature because the Lord has rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. This is the great contrast of the book. What the Lord sees versus what what man sees. They chose a king. They wanted a king like the nations. Even Samuel got swept up into it. But what does the Lord look for in a king? Go back to chapter 13. Chapter 13, 13 and 14. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. Now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. The Lord is not impressed by your outward appearance. You can't, you can't fool him. You can't dress up a man who does not know the Lord and pull something over on him. But let's be honest, many people, and it might be us, who care way more about our appearance than our hearts. Let me just ask you a question. On your way to church this morning, did you give more thought to dressing up your soul than you did dressing up your body? Did you give more consideration to the state of your heart and coming to worship and grow in the knowledge and love of the Lord than you did the state of your hair or your outfit? The Lord does not look upon those things. Jesus told us that the greatest man born of woman, he walked around sporting camel and eating locusts. He was not getting invited to the fine dinner parties. But Jesus told us that no one ever born of woman is greater than him. But even you, least in the kingdom of God, are greater than the greatest man on earth. That is what the Lord sees. That is what carries into eternity. So we must train ourselves to see spiritually and not superficially. Because, and this is literally in the Hebrew, the last sentence there, the Lord sees not as man sees, but the Lord sees upon the heart. Just like the word of God is living and active, it lays us bare and naked before him. We can't hide. So then you may ask, what can we do? (laughs) Here's what's incredible. The Lord knew we'd have a problem with this. And so in the new birth, he gives us new eyes. He gives us spiritual sight. Let's look at Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, 21 through 24. Now, this will be on the screen, but verse 20 isn't. This is right on the heels of him saying, Nevertheless, do not rejoice that you can cast out demons, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Then he says, in that same hour, he rejoices. So you rejoice that your name is written in heaven. Here's what Christ is rejoicing in. 
I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven. He is rejoicing that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, it brings God pleasure to reveal things to his children that he does not reveal to the rest of the world. Yes, Father, for such is your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. God sovereignly opens the eyes of his people so that we can know the Father, so that we can know the Son. And then turning to his disciples, he said privately, Blessed are your eyes that you see. Brothers and sisters, if you are here this morning in Christ, blessed are your eyes that you see. For I tell you that many prophets, Samuel among them, and kings, desire to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. He has opened our eyes. He has given us new vision. You know what sanctification is? Is our vision being refined and adjusted and dialed in. We've been given spiritual prescription lenses. I, I hear this. One of the, the great joys of being a pastor is I get to hear all of your member testimonies. And again and again and again, when you talk to people who are like, I used to sin, I love this, I did all these things, I did all this, and now I hate everything I used to do. I love all these, all, all these new things. They, they, they're like seeing the, the, the world in uh, color as if they, they lived in black and white before. And so remember that. Remember your new eyes because we are so tempted to go back to our carnal eyes. We are so tempted to see and trust what is right in front of us. Like those, like those people who need to wear glasses but they always forget them. You know those people who like, can't see and they're always trying to find their, their, their glasses. How many Christians go through life like that? How many Christians go through life knowing what is right and true and they forget so this is why we need to be in the word and in prayer and with mature saints. Because there, the Holy Spirit minister, ministers to us and each of them uniquely. You want to dial in, you, you want to you get your, your, your spiritual eye test done? Stay in the word of God. Humble yourself in prayer and surround yourself with people who are wise in the word of God. And he will help you see as he sees. All right, so our final section here, um, beginning in verse 8. Then Jesse calls his first son, or the, the, the next son made him pass. The next son, the Lord has not chosen this one. The Lord has not chosen this one. This word for chosen means what it means. Carefully selected with forethought. This is nothing arbitrary. This is not haphazard. Now, remember our discussion from earlier on God's vision and God's provision. He chooses what he has already provided for himself. God is not like us when we have to show up on the scene and we, we receive all this new information and, and process it and, and have to make decisions. The information has always been his. The information is what he has provided for himself. The choice is already cemented. He's not predicting what type of man David would be. He has created David to be the type of man he would be. He has prepared David for this role before the foundation of the earth. 
David is a man after God's own heart because God gave that heart to him. And this should point us to our own election. Many of you, the words of Ephesians 1 should be ringing in your heads right now. Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. I don't know how you can read that and think anything other. This is a sovereign God who chose us, as he says about Jacob and Esau, before doing any good or evil. And why did he choose us? For what purpose? What end? What is he providing for himself that we should be holy and blameless before him? In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. And the rest of the letter flows out of that election. Um, We love Romans 8.28. But it only makes sense because we know Romans 8.29 and 30. Romans 8.28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those we called, he also justified. And those we justified, he also glorified. God does not take breaks from being sovereign. God doesn't choose when he is sovereign or not. That is, that is something God cannot do. He is and always has been and always will be the only sovereign. And so just like he knew which sons were his, just like he knew that the rest of the sons are to be rejected, this should make us think about the wide and the narrow way. He's not mine. He's not mine. I don't know him. He doesn't, he won't know me. Many are called in the general calling sense, but they will not listen and they will walk the wide way. But few are chosen, given eyes to see and walk the narrow way. And so, brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, he has not made a mistake in choosing you. You are not plan B. You are what God has designed throughout all of eternity. Why? Because he has set your lo- his love on you. Because he knew he would be a man after my own heart. She would be a man after my own heart. He saw you before the foundation of the world and provided you for himself. And so I want us to look back, since we're already in the New Testament, let's look at 1 Corinthians 1, going back to our reading. A lot of people get, get hung up on election because we, we think way too much of ourselves and way too little of God. If you know how little you deserve to be chosen, if you know how unlikely and unlovable you are, you will praise God for his sovereign election. And if you start to think too highly of yourselves, let's get a little reminder here. 1 Corinthians 1, 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you powerful. Not many of you of noble birth. 
But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring the nothing to things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. That's why we sang that song earlier. My Lord, I could not choose you. That would never be. My heart would still refuse you if you not chosen me. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You know why, you know why we know election is from God? It gives him the most glory. We have zero reason to boast in ourselves. David does not show up on the scene and say, I knew you were waiting for me to come. Because I'm the strongest, the, the uh, best looking, I'm the obvious choice. The Lord often chooses the least likely to bring him the most glory. Um, one minor detail back again in uh, chapter 16. Where was David when he was called? He's out working. How is he working? He is keeping the sheep. Keeping his father's sheep prepared him to keep his heavenly father's sheep. This will be a precursor um, to when he finally becomes king in 2 Samuel chapter 7. You want to just jump forward to that. 2 Samuel 7. I want to read 8 and 9 and we're going to jump back down to 12. 2 Samuel 7, verse 8. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince or leader or ruler over my people. And I have been with you wherever you went, and I have cut off all your enemies before you, and I will make you a great name like the name of the great ones on earth. Jump down to verse 12. We've been in Acts for a while now. And the sermons and acts remind us that David is dead. David is gone. David will have a great name, but it won't come from David. Verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his singular kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom. Now this might sound like Solomon because it does have an immediate fulfillment. Solomon's going to build a temple, but Solomon will not go on forever. His throne is not established forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. It's important here. When he commits iniquity, uh, Psalm 89 helps us to translate this. When his, so when we commit iniquity, and that son of David took our stripes, our sin, our punishment upon him, it was as if as he committed it himself. In our place. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the Son of Men. But my chesed, my steadfast love, will not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. David, as a shepherd, makes way for a chief shepherd. And this chief shepherd, 
this son of David, he would come from his from his great, 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 great grandfather's line. He would be a king that the people needed, but not the one that they expected. They, when Jesus came, they still wanted a king like the nations. Even the disciples, after the resurrection, are, you, are like, will you now restore Israel to its glory on earth? And he says, you missed the point. I've got something better. The Holy Spirit's coming. But he came as a lowly king riding on a donkey. He came like David, unknown, unlovely. But he came to bear the stripes his people deserved. He came to establish that kingdom so that those citizens would have no more price for entry. And that that chief shepherd would equip many more shepherds for many hundreds of years to come because he loves his sheep and he, and he provides for them and he cares for them. And so when we get back to David, final couple little details here. All right, he says, uh, send and get him for we will sit down and wait till he comes. The Lord's anointed is not here. We're waiting for the one that will come. And he sent and he brought him. The details here are important. He was ruddy. I had to look this up. Um, that means reddish. Um, so see, he chooses the least and the lowly. Um, some, we love you guys. <laughs> I'm looking right at Jesse in the front row. Um, but the, these, these other words are important. He has beautiful eyes and he was handsome. So earlier, the Lord said, I don't look upon the outward appearance. But these terms actually speak more about character than they do appearance. This is a play on verse 7. These, these beautiful eyes, it isn't, it isn't pretty, it isn't attractive. It is a lovely innocence. It is a, it is a loveliness in, in, in sight. And this, this handsome is literally good to the eyes. There is something calming and pleasing and comforting about looking on him. Now Samuel is beginning to see as God sees. He saw all these other men by the outward appearance, but he saw this ruddy little redhead and says, there's something beautiful about him. There's something that is different from all the rest. And I had to think about this. Have you ever just looked in the comforting eyes of a loving brother or sister. You looked at your brother or sister in Christ and you just knew immediately they love me and they care for me and there's something calming about them. There is a spiritual discernment that Samuel is learning to exercise. Because we who have that spiritual discernment, have you ever looked into the eyes of a cold, dark rebel who wants nothing to do with the Lord? And so this is the one who the Lord anoints. And anointing, uh, this will come up a lot in 1 Samuel, but it confirms a blessing and promise from God. The anointed one is chosen and protected by the Spirit of the Lord. Next week, we're going to spend a lot more time on, on the Spirit. So, so we're not going to get to that, that, that last line. But I need to ask you a question. Who anointed David? Was it the Lord? Or was it Samuel? Yes. 
This is how sovereignty and agency come together. This is God's chosen, but God uses Samuel and teaches Samuel and brings him to his chosen so that Samuel can see what God sees. And a little bit of a side note, he's anointed here. History test. Anyone know how long it was before he actually became king? Almost 40 years. So this is a great lesson. There may indeed be a call on your life. Young men, you want to be in in ministry? There may indeed be a call on your life. But it may take a while. And that's a good thing. The Lord had a lot of preparing to do in, in David. All right, so what have we seen? We see God's process here, and it hasn't changed. God foresaw for himself. God provides for himself, and in providing for himself, it is choosing, it is an election, it is, it is consecration, it is making holy, and then spirit empowering. But we only see the result. God is always working. God is working on all these things in his people. He does this in our heart, and so this should remind us of our own salvation. He has provided for, ourself, for himself, elected, chosen in him regenerated, brought to new life in him, and sanctified, set aside for his purpose. There's an old saying, and it rings true, the Lord does not call the equipped, he equips the called. He doesn't look for those who've got the flashiest resume or the most going for them on the outside. He calls his man, and it's usually the unlikely one, and he equips that one because that's where he receives the most glory. And so, brothers and sisters, the sovereignly elected will be given a new heart. We have been given new eyes to see and serve him as his holy, consecrated ones. So finally, in our conclusion, this all points us to the anointed one. Anointing means, or or is translated, Christ, Christos in the Greek. The anointed one, Christ the king. Because that promised son son of David from 2 Samuel 7 He was greater than the son of Jesse, that true and better David that we sung about earlier. His anointing is like no other, and that has great implications for us. A couple more references as we land here. Hebrews 1, 8 and 9. Hebrews 1, 8 and 9. Of the son, he says... Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of our uprightness, the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond all your companions. Because of his anointing. Because he is the Christ. When the Father sees us, his chosen ones, the ones who are united to him, the ones whose his sacrifice is applied to, he sees the Son. He sees his Christ, an anointing like no other. And so every saint is anointed. Every saint is his holy one. There are many false churches out there who would, who would make kings into pastors, or excuse me, pastors into kings, and say that they are the only anointed ones. If you are in Christ, you are covered with his anointing. And it is that anointing 
it made possible by his death and resurrection, his final sacrifice. That's what consecrates us. That's what sets us apart to remain in this world. Um, John 17, I'm not going to go to the, the, the whole reference. John 17, just 18 and 19. Jesus explains this to us when he's talking to his heavenly father. As you sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may be sanctified in truth. Christ was set apart. Christ is what was consecrated. Christ was sacrificed so that we may be sanctified, so that we may persevere. He says earlier, I say this so that you will have joy in this world. This is a joyous hope and a warning for an unbelieving world. I want to leave us with Zephaniah 1.7. Our king is coming again. And when he comes, he will find those who are consecrated for life or those who are devoted to destruction. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice, and he has consecrated his guests. That is the church. He has prepared the sacrifice his son. His guests have been, have been consecrated in the son. And so as we approach this table... Brothers and sisters in Christ, you have been elected, called, and consecrated, prepared for himself. This is his table provided for you in his Christ, Jesus, our King. I'll give you a few moments to prepare yourself, and Jesse will lead us.